If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Hey, it's your host, Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to collective healing, ecological regeneration, and true abundance and wellness for all. As a community-powered show made possible by listeners like you, we do need your direct support to be able to continue the show and keep exploring a lot of perspectives and topics sidelined by mainstream media. So if you value these conversations that we gift to the public, you can reciprocate support for us starting from a gift of $2 at greendreamer.com support. And if you want the references and takeaways from each of our episodes sent to you, you can sign up to our weekly newsletter at greendreamer.com. And now on to today's episode where we're speaking with Fariha Roshin. Spiritually, and what I've also gained from plant medicines is understanding that there is so much wisdom to the earth and that there's so much wisdom to these to these plants that they laugh at greed. They laugh at the absurdity of it. And I think that we have to get to a point where we start to see how absurd it is that people have billions of dollars and they are unwilling to help more than half this planet. As a Muslim queer Bangladeshi, Fariha is interested in the margins, in liminality, otherness, and the mercurial nature of being. She's the author of How to Cure a Ghost and the novel Like a Bird, plus two forthcoming works, Who is Wellness For? and the poetry book Survival Takes a Wild Imagination. Her work has pioneered a refreshing and renewed conversation about wellness, contemporary Islam, and queer identities, and she begins here offering a glimpse into what guided her towards writing her first book, How to Cure a Ghost. I didn't even have the language for what it was that felt like I was always at a loss, but that's how I definitely feel like my writing came about. It was a reaction to something that I didn't have. It was trying to claim the absence of that space that I was always sort of existing and still exist in. It's this this state of longing. And yeah, nobody had any answers for me. And I, I was seeking and I was getting into bad relationships and, and, and going in very, I think, soul-destroying 
journeys with myself. And after a while I came out and it was just, it was a moment of deep depression that kind of pulled me out of my uh, sadness. And that's what led to writing How to Cure a Ghost. It was really trying to make a decision and, and acting towards freedom and liberation and, and, and jumping towards my own autonomy. Mm. Thank you so much for your openness and sharing this. And as you've had to and are still in the process of healing, and perhaps as guidance for writing your novel like a bird, what has troubled you about the dominant media narratives and public discourses on survivorship that might make it more difficult for people who've suffered abuse in its various forms to speak out and seek support? I hate the one-dimensionality of trauma. And I hate how trauma writing or the idea of survivorship is all of a sudden sort of whether anyone says this out loud or not, it's sort of relegated to the space of anti-intellectual writing. Anything that sort of talks about feeling or talks about anything uh, to do with emotion. And I think it, it, it's always really interesting for me as somebody who does consider herself an intellectual, look at sort of the canon of writing, the canon of, of, of the great novelists of all time. Most of them are white. And then obviously after that, most of them are men, cis men, and usually straight men as well. And so I've been thinking a lot about that and who gets to be canonized. and. There's a lot to be said about how whiteness subsumes everything. And it obviously we understand how it, how it subsumes institutions, but I think what we don't really understand, or at least we don't look at, is the insidious levels in which it occupies space. And for me, occupation is really interesting, the idea of occupation and like, you know, occupying territory or occupying again, space. And so, yeah, I, I don't think that he, writing about healing or writing about trauma is anti-intellectual because it's anti-intellectual. It's because it's been made to be so in the guise of who gets to determine what is good writing and what is bad writing. Mm. And those people don't really care about healing. They're not, they expect and think about art within this very limited dimension. But all art to me, all of the, all of the great art to me is about this human, again, to go back to longing and, and in this a sense of humanness that I think modern literature just doesn't really understand. And to me as a Bangladeshi queer immigrant in America. I'm not, I'm non-American as well. All of that and what that means. And, you know, growing up in Australia, growing up in Canada, but really like cementing who I am in an Australian context, which says so much about me, but within an American audience, within the world, the literature world, the, 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 the people that get to choose what is good writing, they don't understand me. They don't understand what somebody like me with the context and, and the, the, I mean, it's not even just struggles, but it's also the, the joy, the ancestry within that, that's laced in so much trauma, but also just like history. We don't think about the, 
the ways in which our stories, our lives, our, our families, all of this adds to who we are. And then some of us become people that alchemize all of that information, which is what I believe I'm doing. Yeah, who makes space for us in, in, in the world of writing? I don't think anybody does. So yeah, I don't think that that's answering your question, but I wanted to like bring that in because to me with Like a Bird, I, I felt very frustrated by how people weren't looking beyond the fact that this isn't about just trauma. It's about so much more. And it's okay also to write about trauma. Does that make sense? Yeah, I- absolutely. Yeah. And also that the emotional and feelings tend to be or tend to be viewed as anti-intellectual, as you mentioned, that almost feels reflective of our greater culture that seems to privilege, for example, logical thinking and rationalism over sensitivity and how people are feeling emotionally. And I don't know, I wonder if you have any thoughts that you would want to add to that. Oh my God, I have so many thoughts. I mean, and that's kind of why I think I brought in that context of colonial thinking, you know, that Colonial thinking has determined how we see the world, but also how we think about the world. And therefore, how we then, again, like who we privilege, whose voices we privilege, and who we prioritize, and who we don't. And I think that there's a very specific reason why we have been forced to look away from ourselves, why we've been forced to look outside of ourselves, why we've been really kind of severed from this core sense of being. I mean, that sense of belonging, all of that is, I I think, kind of what I'm trying to understand. Like how to cure a ghost is so much. The ghost is about, I've said this in other interviews, about so much. It's about colonialism. It's about, you know, white settler identity. It's about obviously being a trauma survivor and and my mother and all of those kinds of elements. But yeah, I, I think that like streamlining this world where we don't focus on who we are and what we feel at every given moment has allowed us to exploit each other and the earth. And it's having just such a residual impact. But this is why I think this writing is so necessary for right now, because we are embarking on a very long and arduous journey as a humanity. Yeah. The time feels right for us to disrupt this pattern and cycle of harm to move towards collective healing. And there's often this saying that hurt people hurt people. And that sort of underlies the transformative justice framework, which at its core seeks to break this cycle of harm and create the conditions that can ideally prevent or at least minimize harm in the first place. And I wonder if you've had to process this idea as a part of your personal disruption of harm and path towards healing, and perhaps how you've contextualized your experiences with larger systems of extraction and exploitation that we just touched on that may have contributed to creating the conditions that you've had to confront. I mean, there's a couple of layers to that question. Firstly, People are messy. And that within the transformative justice framework and also just thinking about abolition 
in ways that are actually approachable? You know, what are the next steps for us to actually be a society, an abolitionist society? For me, that kind of comes back to, well, again, how we interact with one another. And and I'm guilty of this too. That's that's why I'm like saying and, and beginning with the fact that we are messy as humans. And so I think that that has to be known and understood and accepted. And then the next part is that I'm also a survivor and I know what it feels like to not be seen within that framework and understanding that my body as especially as a child sexual abuse survivor as somebody who's experienced really is sort of like uh, i think some of the worst abuse that I, you know at the hands of a parent it's it's extremely difficult and th- those things are uh, things that i've had to accept about my own life but also healing for myself on an individual level i've had to appreciate and know that there are certain things that led to my mother doing the things that she did. And that sort of holistic perspective is something that's so missing, I think, that how, you know, we can both be harmed and harm. And that cycle is something that actually has to be seen for us to actually do something about it. And I think that Oftentimes within this binary of good or bad, evil and pure, we lose so much essence of our true humanity. And that's kind of where we get stuck. And that also really comes back to, you know, this idea of like who gets a say and who gets a voice. That also comes back to this sort of binary understanding of what is good and what is bad. Mm. So maybe part of the challenge is that our dominant culture and society and a lot of people within it aren't seeing this present moment and how people are. Like we're not seeing these things clearly enough. So oftentimes people want to jump to solutions to seeing, mm. you know, what do, what do we do next? Let's stop focusing on what's happened in the past. But it's almost like if we if we aren't able to see clearly, then we're not going to be able to know what it will take to transform this current reality. Exactly. I think that's why so much of my writing is rooted in the past and is rooted in the reality that we are very much still synthesizing like what happened to her ancestors where we're synthesizing what they were not able to process. And, you know, in my life, for example, you know, my family survived partition and then the civil war in Bangladesh in 1971. So there's, that's a, that's a lot of impact. You know, when we also think about world wars, who, which wars are we thinking about and what death toll matters and, and also when you think about invisibilization and the ways in which people are invisibilized, we have to also think about whose genocide gets categorized as a genocide and also whose doesn't. And I think for my family, I, there is a sense of um, frustration uh, you know, on my end as a person who feels like I have had to do so much of the work that was impossible 
for my parents to do, for my grandparents to do, for my great grandparents to do. But that then becomes this sense of, or, or state of transformation. And I think ecologically and spiritually, we're kind of all aligning at the same time. And this is why this time is so important because there is this precipice that's shifting where all of a sudden, even though like, you know, we've had, there's been so much pain that we've um, not looked at, we're finally being asked to look at it. So it's like this, it is an immensely exciting time, regardless of how much we're actually having to process. Yeah, I definitely feel that. And healing, of course, goes hand in hand with wellness. And one of the topics you explore is the wellness industrial complex. We had talked about a lot of different industrial complexes on the show before, like the military, media, prison, medical, NGO, and even museum industrial complexes. But can you introduce the wellness industrial complex to our listeners who may be really conceptualizing what it means and looks like for the first time? Yeah, absolutely. So the wellness industrial complex is quite a recent phenomena in a lot of ways. Of course, it's been building for the last couple of decades. And you could see that sort of in the 60s in America with the introduction of yoga and meditation and sort of that 60s idea that we have of like new age shift. I feel like that was sort of a a specific era within the wellness industrial complex. But then we have the modern era right now, which has gone completely bananas. And it is at the end of the day, a the concept of extraction, an extraction of knowledge, an extraction of of of, and we're not talking about you know just any kind of knowledge. We're talking about indigenous knowledge that is not given the respect that it deserves. You know, Vandana Shiva talks a lot about patenting and who gets to again patent their ideas. There, you know, something like basmati rice. Who gets to own basmati rice? You know, I think within wellness, it's a really interesting thing that we haven't quite looked at yet. Who gets to be a wellness company? What does it mean when a white company is now selling products, turmeric products uh, from India, but they're not aware of the farmer strike, for example, and as well as the, the context of what turmeric means in Indian society and also what does it mean to constantly extract and not give back to a culture that you're taking from. So there's many different elements of this. And of course, turmeric is just one example of that. And so now we've got like turmeric, we've got ashwagandha, we've got ginger, they, all of these ideas, acupuncture to yoga, again, to meditation. Yes. But then there's like more insidious aspects like ayahuasca and, and even psilocybin mushrooms. And we're getting into territory that's very kind of faux spiritual, but again, not being cognizant of the impact of colonization. And what does it mean for white companies to continue to take while black and brown people, indigenous people are being incarcerated, are having to protest against militant fascist governments just to have the bare minimum as farmers in India and like living in on indigenous land. What does it mean to take the customs of something like a sweat lodge or even ayahuasca, but not think of the, the ancestral lineage and what it means to sit with these plants 
What, is, what does it mean to sit with these customs? And what does it mean to connect to these spirits that exist on this land? So a couple of years ago, I was on a panel with an Aboriginal Australian poet named Lorna Monroe, and she said, no protest is political on stolen land. And I think back to that a lot and within this understanding of wellness again, because if we're at the bare minimum, not thinking about or unpacking, what does it mean to be well when you live on stolen land? What does it mean to be well when you pay people $5 and then sell it for $35, you know, and $5, you know, that's, that's a good estimate. We're, we're talking about people like completely being exploited. There is no comparison. And so to me, that's, that's sort of what the wellness industrial complex is. It's just a desire to take. And in a lot of ways it is neocolonial. It's just a, a new concept of how to take as much as possible while giving nothing in return. Yeah. So when you talk about anti-colonial wellness, that is really about having a more holistic and context-dependent understanding of what it means to be well. And that feels like a recurring theme for us at Green Dreamer at this point, as I'm sure a lot of our regular listeners may recall from past conversations, is this importance of contextualizing everything. And you also have a journal for women, femmes, and non-binary folks to work through body dysmorphia called Being in Your Body. And in thinking about this together with the wellness industry and even the beauty industry by extension, I wonder how much these industries have been built off of and are really reliant on a dominant culture of non-acceptance and so are offering these sort of faux solutions that don't get to the deeper roots of why so many do feel perpetual inadequacy. Yeah, capitalism relies on that for us. You know, really, it's, it's, it's a nefarious system that relies on us hating ourselves, as is the beauty industry, as is the fashion industry. And that is what keeps the engines churning on something like capitalism. It is this complete denial and disregard of how to actually intentionally sit with oneself. It's always, again, looking outside of who we are. And to me, I think, you know, I, I grew up poor. I didn't have the access to nice things. I didn't have the kind of life that I really wanted. When I was in my 20s, I was like, never again. This is I'm going to, I'm going to want money. I'm going to want a good life. And then ultimately I realized around the time, really, I started to write how to cure a ghost and being in your body kind of became sort of a conceptual thing a couple of years later, but it was very much within this same kind of idea and feeling of liberation of really wanting to understand how to remove myself from within a system that not only doesn't see the layers of my identity and my humanity and what that means, but also just relies on me disliking everything about myself so I can continue to fill in that gap. That At that point when I realized that I no longer wanted to participate in a society like that, was a moment where I began to see my own flaws and began to see how I do perpetuate these things. And 
I think that journey is never ending. It's not just about capitalism. It's also about patriarchal standards. And, and, and if we're talking about beauty and if we're talking about fashion, we're also, what we have to think about is like who gets to, again, say what is beautiful and whose gaze are we really trying to impress? And, and there's just like, again, like just so many layers to all of these things. And I think as a thinker, that's those layers I'm trying to understand because, and also reveal them obviously, because to me, I don't want to live in denial and I want to live truthfully to myself, but I also want to break these systems because they're so easily breakable if we all did it together. And, and that's the kind of, that's the joke, you know? And I think a lot of my writing is about trying to remind people that we can do this. It's not impossible. Capitalism is a hundred years old, you know, like this is, this is very recent history and you know, like trying to, to get to the bottom of it is really about looking towards the future and looking towards how we actually get there. I, I'm, I'm looking back to look forward always because I think that those steps bring us closer to the core. Always. Yeah. One of the realizations I made that just was so instructive and clarifying as to how this current path that we're on is going to continually lead to collective self-destruction is just that in this current system, problem creation and then problem solving is more profitable for the industry Mm -hmm. and therefore the system than just directly addressing the underlying conditions. And so if we think about like the wellness industry or the beauty industry, like making people feel unwell or inadequate and then selling some sort of solution to meet that short-term need, like perpetuating this cycle is going to be more and more profitable for the industry. So they're going to have an incentive to continually go down that path. But collectively, that is part of what is driving our planetary degradation and dehumanization of uh, human civilization. And I want to pivot here a little. So as part of your personal healing, I know you started working with plant medicines. And a few months after that journey started for you, you wrote a piece called Reimagining Our Collective Futures, where you said, quote, plant medicine, especially if you work with brilliant facilitators, can do many things. But connecting you to the earth is its inherent design, end quote. I know you don't really share your personal experience with plant medicines because it is a deeply private journey, but can you speak more about this statement more broadly and what you've come to learn can be the power in engaging in plant medicines through the lens of connection and remembering our senses of selves? I mean, I think indigenous people are the answer to the future. I think that that's ultimately, if I can say one thing in this whole entire podcast is that I mean I think ultimately that's sort of what I'm pointing to in my work as well they have all the answers Tyson Young Caporta is really an Aboriginal writer I just finished his book Sand Talk and throughout all of it you know he's really again braiding indigenous knowledge and and trying to show how are we going to move forward and to me that sort of my most prominent feeling when I think about plant medicines, I, 
it makes me very emotional because my relationships, my relationship to them has come with such humility. I, I don't feel like I'm the right person to talk about them, but I do want to say that I have an immense gratitude for what they've taught me and that kind of connection, you know, something like the mycelial network, mycelium network, the intelligence of these plants and how not only they interact with one another, but how they interact with us and the ability that they have to shoot like an arrow and, and directly communicate with you. I mean, something like ayahuasca, which is, you know, obviously such a sacred medicine that I've been fortunate enough to sit with a few times and really have a very important relationship that I'm building with her, with this plant. I think that's also a part of it too. And kind of goes back to the extractive nature of healing. You know, people sit with these plants once in their lifetimes and they think that I've done it, this is it. And of course, in these communities that they come from, you know, for example, the Honiquin tribe and also the Shipibo people, you know, they're, they're both communities in the Amazon that are doing, you know, public outreach to sit with non-Indigenous folks primarily because they've, they've had a download from the medicine that that's what they need to do. You know, my, my frustration and because I've witnessed it and I've seen it in these spaces is again, that sort of unconscious whiteness that comes in that is just all about extraction and, and what can you give me in this moment to make me feel good. And, and wellness is so dangerous when it's just about the self, when it's just about the individual and it doesn't take into consideration, you know, the community and also who gets to serve you, who serves you and why is that person serving you and what are you doing? What are you giving to them? And then that idea of, all, of course, of, sacred reciprocity. Robin Wall Kimmerer writes about this so beautifully. Sacred reciprocity was was something that I really learned through these medicines and through these plants, understanding that they give to me so I can give back. That is the whole point. And if we can understand that that is what wellness practices in India, you know, with Ayurveda and uh, everything from, from yoga to tantra, is an understanding of, you know, humanness, but it's, it's about never the individual. It's always about the community. This is what every wellness practice has come from, an urgency to help the community. Sacred reciprocity is a thing we need more than ever now. And every single time I sit with these plants, I remember why I'm here. I remember that I'm on this land, that I'm fortunate enough to have had a connection with this land, to feel her, to feel protective of her. That's what these medicines and these plants have given me. So it's an immensely beautiful connection that I have with them. And I hope that more people can have that connection and really come back to the earth so we can heal her. Yeah, really powerful. And I think it goes back to this idea of a need to contextualize wellness and see that 
so much of our wellness relies on healing our relationships with other people, with our communities, with the land, with earth. And so just taking a more holistic understanding of wellness is critical if we want to move towards healing. And whenever I think about, well, the little bit that I understand of ceremonial and sacred plant medicines personally, I think about how there are extensive rituals and cultural traditions that they're a part of and are used with. And then I think about how at least 40% of pharmaceutical drugs are derived from plants, Mm -hmm. though they end up being patented, controlled by centralized powers, and bottled up into these decontextualized substances that people will often take without deep knowledge or respect for their origins or cultural histories or the rituals that they, they may have been accompanied by beyond the f- act of consumption alone. And so this is maybe a question without any right answers per se, but I wonder how the wellness and medical industrial complexes may have compromised the true healing potentials of these plant medicines that they extract from when they leave out or neglect their sacred origins and greater cultural contexts and rituals and practices? I mean, I think 100%. And I think that to me, the way that I've understood this and, you know, I'm writing my fourth book, Who is Wellness for right now. And it's very much talking about how I believe and, and understand and that there's a lot of evidence to prove that obviously pharmaceutical companies don't give, give, anything about they don't give a can no I swear <laughs> yeah go for it pharmaceutical companies do not give a fuck about you they are not here to make you well to, to they if they if America as a, a nation cared about its people it would firstly care about the land it doesn't care about the land so it doesn't care about the people we have to also think about wellness in terms of food I have IBS I have a, you know and it's chronic I've I've had it since I was 14. I've I've witnessed the ways in which my body has degraded since I moved here when I was 19 and all of it's to do with food and what I put into my body and what kind of good organic food is accessible. It's accessible to people who have wealth. And when you start tracking all of these things, you begin to see, okay, they really don't care about us. Um, and I wish, I wish, because again, it's not about not making it accessible. Wellness should be accessible to everybody. Everybody should have access to plant medicines if it feels right for these indigenous communities that sit with them. Absolutely. Everyone should have access to them. It's about understanding and knowing what goes into that practice what goes into as you were saying that it is ceremonial everything's ceremonial you know if we think of the history of tobacco and how it's been exploited i think that is sort of a, the perfect capsule of how detrimental globalizing or or, or or taking something sacred and then you know changing it completely, removing it completely, and then making it kill people. Like it's, there's so many layers to this. And I, I think spiritually and what I've also gained from plant medicines is understanding that there's so much wisdom to the earth and that there's so much wisdom to these, to these plants 
that they laugh at greed, that they laugh at the absurdity of it. And I think that we have to get to a point where we start to see how absurd it is that people have billions of dollars and they are unwilling to help more than half this planet. And, and once we, again, start to actually address and look at how everything is connected, and to me, the Anthropocene started the moment that they decided to colonize half the world. That kind of legacy, as we think about climate, and we think about what is, what is climate and who gets impacted by climate, you know, they say that Bangladesh is going to be one of the first countries to go, what does that mean for me as a Bangladeshi non-immigrant living in America? There's just, everything is just so connected and it's so interesting how we don't wanna know and we don't wanna see and we don't want to take accountability. But I think the planet is telling us that we don't have much other choice and that we have to return to her and that we have to return to a way of life that prioritizes each other because that's the only way that we will survive as a civilization if that's what we even want. Yeah, that really resonates with me because for me, this legacy and history of colonization, that's what pretty much directly led to the severance of relationships to Mm -hmm. place and to community. So Mm -hmm. we're talking about displacing Native communities that have the ancestral relations and biocultural place-based knowledges of how to care for very specific landscapes. And Mm -hmm. a lot of that knowledge is being marginalized or diverse place-based cultures assimilated and so forth. So a lot of people talk about climate change and focus on carbon emissions, but I really feel that it's a lot deeper than that. And just attributing it to this severance of relationships says so much. Yeah. Yeah. Says so much and just has really resonated for me as well. And in terms of medicines, this isn't to say that there is a definite thing as purity or that all things that are processed are necessarily worse. But going back to your statement that plant medicines, when facilitated by their cultural stewards and respected Mm -hmm. guides, is designed to rekindle people's relationship with earth, it makes me think of these bottles of pills as like a representation of our disconnection from who we are as a part of earth and how we've created these splits between food, medicine, culture, spirituality, and ecology. And Mm. this isn't at all to stigmatize the pharmaceutical drugs that people need for their own healing processes, but I think it's always worth questioning the how. So how these medicines are created, how their full potentials for supporting healing may have been compromised by reducing their parts, how they've become less accessible because of these patents that allow corporate centralized control, and et cetera. So I guess with all of this said, what have you been processing as you explore both healing at a deeply personal level alongside recognizing Earth's signs of traumas and cause for healing? Yeah, it was during actually one of, uh, during an ayahuasca ceremony last year where I really saw the parallel between Mother Earth and me for example, as a trauma survivor, as a sexual abuse survivor, as a woman in this world who has experienced extreme types of different kinds of 
types of trauma and also mining and extraction. And when I was able to put two and two together and see that that's what returning to the land really means, it's returning and understanding that her rhythms and her cycles exist within you and her templates and her temples exist within you, that those mountain ranges are in your bloodstream. There is something undeniably connected between us and this earth. And you said it, you know, those pills are a representation of how disconnected we are thinking the hubris to think that some science-based company that refutes and refutes indigenous knowledge and doesn't even see it as valuable, which I think is also another thing that we didn't really touch on today, but is something I would love to just end on, like how much that also creates sort of this um, myopic understanding of what is healing or what is good. Again, putting so much power in capital, putting power on a, on a dollar sign to help you or aid you and not thinking about the herbs and the plants and uh, even just going to the ocean, going to nature, uh, how, that, how much that, that can help you. John O'Donohue did this beautiful interview with Krista Tippett on On Being a couple of years ago, just before his death. And it's really stayed with me because he talks about how his friend in London went to the seaside for a week and was completely restored from all of her ailments. And it makes me think a lot about how urban environments are another factor of what kind of is there to debilitate you or demoralize you or disconnect you from who you are and again from the earth. So you're constantly having to just put yourself into a little box and compartmentalize all of your needs when in fact, if you could just go to the ocean, you would probably be deeply impacted by how this earth continues to move and shift and a new day rises, a new sun rises despite what we've done to her, how much we've taken from her, how much she is sick and ill right now. She is mirroring us as a society and all of the fires on water, all of the bushfires that happened in Australia last year, just before the pandemic, the pandemic itself, all of this violence, anti-Blackness, police violence, all of this is a reflection of what we are doing wrong and how we can change it. And it's really up to us. And I am an optimist because I'm looking at it and I'm realizing that once you start looking at it, it's not that scary anymore. Mm. These are, of course, pretty heavy topics, but you're so poetic with your words that it's like moving this, it's stirring up this deep, deep part within me. And I want to thank you so much for that. Before we go into our closing lightning round questions, I know you've recently embraced the role of being a multidisciplinary artist in support of your personal and our planetary healing. As sort of a practical guidance, what advice would you give to people wanting to support their communities or our earth in ways that aren't really valued by our dominant society, such as through different forms of art? Yeah, I mean, that's why I started to write. And I think 
I started to write also because writing's free and writing was my therapy when I was 12 years old and I was starting like a bird. And to me, it became multiple things. It was my therapy. It was my mother. It was this absence that I was talking about early, earlier. But yeah, I think that writing and obviously the sort of writing that I'm doing, I don't think that it's valued. And I do think that it can be accessible to anybody. And it for anybody that's wondering how to do that, I think all you have to do is just start and really consider what it is that you need to say. And for me, it was seeing all the things that weren't being said and maybe this sort of kind of almost like weird rebel nature that I have at times where I really love fight, fighting systems. I think I really came on this planet to like just fight <laughs> systems. And I think that yeah, again, fighting systems, get creative. Think about how you can how you can start, I think, really working towards like fighting the apocalypse. Like how do we or not fighting it, but like how do we actually embrace it, not fight it and like begin to tend to these wounds and tend to each other. I think the best way to do that is through art and it doesn't have to be the art that wins awards it can be the art that just tells the truth What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? Uplifting. I think I might not have the right uplifting. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> uh, with to me, like what's uplifting is like reading Gabor Mate's work and mm. understanding uh, about wounds. Okay, uplifting. I'm currently reading Everybody by Olivia Lang. And it's not really uplifting, but it's really it's really making me think a lot. Mm. What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice you engage with to stay grounded? Um, I say keep going a lot. I'm a Capricorn, so it's really it reminds me that I have to keep going. But something I've learned a lot as well recently is to actually like root myself into the earth in meditation. And that really settles any kind of anxiety or aloofness that I might feel or disassociation that I often can get into as a trauma survivor. But that's really helped me ground. And what are some of your biggest inspirations right now? Honestly, the earth, you know, going out into nature, walking by the river, watching water gleam, seeing how green each tree is and how it can turn orange and brown and seeing the roots and seeing the ways in which bark has different shades and different textures. I mean, 
yeah, I've, I've really been allowing myself to be embraced by her. And it, it's just such a, such a revolutionary feeling to, to feel like I've often felt, you know, as a kid that I was abandoned by God, but what I was actually, what I have actually realized that God was always here and God was always accessible and the earth is always accessible and how beautiful that is that we get to be with her and commune with her. And that is an act of the divine for me. Mm. Having chills listening to you speak. Green Dreamer, we are coming to a close, but you can find Fariha's writing, art, and books by going to her main website, www.fariharoshin.com. And you can also follow her on face uh, on Instagram at Fariha underscore Roshin. Fariha, thank you so much for joining me today. And I really want to honor your poetic presence and rawness and your commitment to being of service to others in your path of healing and not just for yourself, but really this extended and greater sense of self that includes larger communities and our shared planet. So thank you so much. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as green dreamers? Thank you so much also for your time and for this, your questions are always exceptional and I've just enjoyed this so much. I don't take it for granted that I get to have these kinds of platforms to say what I need to say. But what I would like to end with is that revolution is possible. Evolution is possible. And I hope that we can all begin to work towards that with each other. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To reciprocate support for our community-powered show starting from just $2, you can head to greendreamer.com support. Without a media network behind us, we also rely entirely on word of mouth so that our extensive archive of conversations can reach and inspire more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with loved ones or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps so much and we are so grateful. The song featured in this episode is Little Girl by Lil Idley. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care and I will catch you soon in the next episode. 